Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing lessons or sermons uh, in the upcoming weeks or whenever you might drop in on this episode. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is David Drury. David Drury works for the uh, Global Marketplace Multipliers. That's a new program and division of the uh, Wesleyan Church Global Ministries that he has been spearheading and working on the last couple uh, months. And he is a pastor and teacher and writer and thinker and a dear friend and my uh, brother. I've had him on the show before many times. He's a great guest. He hasn't been on in a while. We, uh, uh, we didn't have a falling out or anything. We just happened to not be on for a little while. Uh, when we were going through the Psalms last year was the main reason. Uh, so, but man, when we jumped back into the Gospels this year, I said, David, I got to have you back on. It's been too long. And so I'm so glad that he's back on the show this week uh, for the first time in a while. Uh, we're looking at John chapter 1, verse 29 through 42. John chapter 1, verse 29 through 42. And let me mention that he does reference, I mean, he's written a, a dozen books and you can find them all on Amazon, but there's one in particular he made reference to, but without mentioning the title, it's called Transforming Presence and it's built around the conversations uh, in the first half of the book of John. And he, he makes a reference to it partway through, but didn't name check it. And I thought I'd slip that into the intro now so you you know which one he's talking about there when when it comes to that. Uh, if you're enjoying the show today, make sure to press the share button on your podcast player app, and then you can pass the show along to others because word of mouth is the best way to get word of the show around. And uh, if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text to find ways you can support the show. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this conversation with Dave. So John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. John 1, 29 through 42. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. 
So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. This first thing Andrew did was to find his brother. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we ask that the spirit that uh, descended upon your son Jesus and remained on him, that that same spirit would abide and remain with us, with David and myself and all those listening in, that your very spirit will guide us into this story, into these events, so that in turn we may speak them preach them, teach them, and live them in the world. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah, so what do you notice here? What jumps out at you as you read this text afresh today? Ah, well, he calls Jesus, John does, the Lamb of God both times in this sort of two episodes that seemed significant that that was the title of all the different titles that he might have given, especially since this is kind of an introduction to him. That's what he emphasizes. That jumps out. Yeah, and one one little fact is, I guess they it goes the next day, twice in this passage, and then right after we get the next day again. Mm-hmm. And then you get the phrase. And then on the third day chapter is the two. Mm-hmm. Oh, Sorry, that's where you're exactly. going. Exactly. Yep. And then it says at the end of the Canis story, they go to Capernaum for a few days, and then they leave from there back to Jerusalem for the Passover. So I only mention that to say that we're only a week out from Passover. Passover, Right. Which is sort of a bookend to the whole ministry of Jesus. Yes. Unlike, of course, the other gospels that have no mention of Passover till the end. Right. They kind of build up to Passover. Beginning. Right. John's got a Passover at the very opening. And because there's no reference to Passover until halfway through chapter two, that's easy to miss. I didn't catch that till years after years of studying John. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This Lamb of God business is already linked to Passover in time, just not the same Passover, you know, not for two more years to begin the next. Because then John, uh, sorry, now I'm just geeking out about because in the beginning book, was the Passover. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, because John also locates the famous feeding of the 5,000 at Passover time, unlike the others. So you get these Passovers woven throughout. Very beginning, in the beginning, Passover. I love it. That's great. That's six, right? Yes, so six. So chapter one and two is Passover setting. Chapter six is Passover setting. And then, of course, the whole chapter 12 to the end of the book is Passover. So just in terms of the meaning of Lamb of God, right? This is obvious Passover language. Yeah. And part of that, the idea of the sacrificial lamb, you know, sort of idea, it's not the lamb of God who can take away your sins or my sins or even the people of Israel's sins. It's who takes away the sin of the world. Wow. Yeah. It's just so expansive. I mean, like it would have been a big deal for as we found in other places to say he forget he can forgive your sins, right? Which of course the 
you know, he's baptizing here has to do with repentance and forgiveness already. But the idea that he's got a bigger thing going on, that jumps out to me. The sins of the whole world. And even First John adds that little line, First John chapter 2, where it says, who died, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So that gets emphasized mm-hmm. again in the John letters, making you even wonder if that was something that was discussed or debated, you know, mm-hmm. who is this sacrifice for, you know, how, how far does it really reach? Right. And there's this emphasis for the whole world. God so loved the world. Right. It jumps out to me that this, just because the other narratives of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus are sort of play by play. And this is sort of the analyst at the halftime. Oh, that's so good. Say more. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like the other ones are like, this happened and then this happened and this happened. Whereas this is a little bit more like the actual baptism is off screen. Yes. True? Yes. Uh, it's so and then strange. John's like, yeah, which is such a like, I mean, to switch metaphors, I talk about sports, but like when something in a movie or a television show or even a book happens off screen, usually it's important, but it's usually that's the stuff you want to put in. But in some ways, the testimony of John was more important. And he uses that term, gave this testimony, right? Yeah. And that's the very first time we hear from John back in verse six is that language yeah. he came as a testimony. It's almost like recording his testimony is more important than narrating right. the event directly for some reason, which is strange. It's sort of like I references before the resume kind of thing. Yeah, it's quite an important reference here. Yeah, calling our first witness, John the Baptist, right? Bingo. Yeah. Great. Now that we've used four metaphors, I think we dealt with that well. Yeah, but I, I agree that it's agree. really bizarre that he doesn't narrate it Interesting directly. It may, I mean, it reinforces the concept of this being very self-aware of the other gospels existing. And in some sense, adding a texture that's not there in the others and amplifying that and ordering events and pointing out things, even like the third day thing you mentioned and the Passover and the Lamb of God stuff. It's just all, you know, it's part of why even the structure of having John as the fourth gospel in a Bible is such a, like a first time reader of scripture, by the time they read through Luke, they're like, okay, like I I get it. Like I hear these stories. They probably are not going to understand the nuances between three books. Then they get to John. It's like, it's kind of like, oh, what is this? There's all kinds of stuff going on here that are not in the other books. Uh, almost like that when the director's cut of a movie comes out for nerds, they always love that. It's kind of what this is. Oh, I uh, love that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And even the selection of this text in the sort of lectionary that we're following, this text comes right, passage is coming right after Matthew's version of narrating the baptism. And it's sort of like inserting in, and even the way the lectionary uses kind of, it basically uses Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as kind of the structure for year A, B, and C, and then sprinkles John throughout all three years. Cause you almost need, you can't like not use John. You you need him for, you know, Easter season every year, you need certain key passages. And so to kind of spread them around, so you almost, it's even, even in, if we're having any of our weekly regular listeners, they would have heard a baptism discussion last week with me and Eric Barreto on Matthew uh, chapter three. And then this is kind of inserted almost here now for us, not, it's not the way John presents it, but for us as readers of the canonical gospels through the year 
it's kind of offered as a kind of commentary, like you said, or a deep background right. or the testimony, what John says about that event. And it's important since in Mark, it's ambiguous and somewhat in Matthew as well, but definitely in Mark, it's actually ambiguous whether this event, this event of the sky opening and the he saw a dove. Well, who is it that saw the dove? Did Jesus see the dove? Is it, is this a vision? You know, how public was this, you know? Right. And so I think it's actually, I think John, John's gospel is kind of going out of its way to say, well, John the Baptist saw it. He saw this happen Mm -hmm. and give at least his account of what took place. Although at the same time, kind of subtly sidelining the event of being baptized by not narrating it directly. Like you said, in a way it, it's not making it unimportant. It's making the event, not the focus, but the testimony. Yeah. The the testimony. Yeah. I mean, John the Baptist is the key character of this first chapter. Yeah. Yeah. In many ways, there's the, the preamble, the word made flesh, all of but then mentions John though. Three, Right. right. Three. Yeah. Right. And, and by name. And so, and not Jesus by name, right? Not until verse 17. That's right. John's the first human name mentioned. Yeah. So, and then John the Baptist, there's three episodes here. There's the one he talks about, the one who comes after me and all that. And then the part I just read has really has two sections, two different episodes, two different days, like you mentioned, where John then speaks about Jesus. And the interesting thing is Jesus is sort of introduced without uh, it. Like it's the testimony of John that's important. And Jesus doesn't uh, say anything in the first section, right? Yeah, no, it's just what John is saying from 29 to 34. Jesus has no speaking lines. Exactly. It's all a buildup to his first line, which is, I think, where we'll turn in our after the break here in a moment. But even before we get there, the artistry of it is just so brilliant. Again, we don't have in today's passage, the first sequence, the previous day. I mean, it's implied actually kind of nice to say. Yeah, 1928. He says, there is one standing in your midst whom you do not know uh, who is coming after me, who is ahead of me, that that stuff, right? But he says he's mm. standing in your midst. So he's Jesus is already – it is introducing Jesus in this kind of artistic way. He's standing right. in your midst. And then our passage starts with he saw Jesus coming toward him, right? So it's like Jesus is now moving toward him. And then in verse 35, the next day, again, he, John is standing with two of his disciples and he watched Jesus walking by, right? So you have to start with Jesus standing in the crowd and now coming toward John and now walking by and therefore kind of away. There's almost the kind of imagery of Jesus is kind of hidden in the crowd and then he steps forward and now he's moving on without John. It's almost anticipating he must decrease, I must, you know, he must increase, I must decrease later that we're going to get in John three, right? This movement where Jesus is hiding in the crowd, comes forward, and now is passing by. And the choice now, what what are you going to do? And he just says, the Lamb of God, he doesn't say, go follow him. He just says, there he is, Lamb of God. Right. What are you going to do about it? Right. And none of, and Jesus hasn't said a word yet. I think you're dead right. I don't even notice that till now, how it almost draws our attention more on the movement of the story because John's doing all the talking. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, you know, I mean, I, I so often think of other storytelling novels and movies that start from a perspective that's not the main character, right? And then you sort of see the main character 
who clearly, like you said, in, in the first part of the chapter at the end of the preamble is Jesus Christ. So it's clear that that is the main character, but then it's sort of, that's more like, like at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, there's all the sort of the preamble talk in the movies. That's sort of what that prologue is. And then once we get to bag end in this chapter, it's all about John the Baptist and him. And then, you know, sort of Jesus actually starts to have a conversation, which I think we should talk about, but it's really a, this conversation between his disciples, which really just sets up the way he talks with people. I, I've always thought of the first half of the book of John as conversations. It's conversations with Jesus is the almost the way you could just well outline it that way. And I like that it starts with a conversation and not a speech. Yeah. And even the longer speeches almost always start, especially the first two big ones in chapter three and four with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, they both start out as dialogues. And then he, he gets cooking at a certain point and you get a bit of a speech from him. But they're very conversational back and forth. That's right. I think you're dead right that that's it's really the last half of John then gets into the points where there's all this. Be- and there's some big ones, John 17, and you know, the chief among them all. But the first half, it's really very conversational. Dialogues. You're right. And that's another one of those contrasts, whereas Mark tends to be like a story with a great one-liner at the end that kind of interprets the story here. It kind of turns it on its head. It's like a little story. And then in an extended conversation, conversations with Jesus. So when we come back from the break, let's discuss our first moment of conversation with Jesus. And we're back. Welcome back to fresh text. I'm here with my guest, David Drury, and we are looking at John chapter 1, verse uh, 29 through 42. Let me read just 35 to 42, These this first dialogue moment here, and we'll zoom in on that a little bit in our second segment. So on the next day, again, John was standing, and standing with him were two of his disciples. And John looked upon Jesus walking by And said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two of his disciples who heard him say this, they began to follow after Jesus. Then Jesus, turning around and seeing them following, said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, Where are you staying or abiding? (laughs) And he said to them, come and you will see. Then they went and they saw where he was abiding and they abided with him that very day. And it was about the 10th hour, which is late afternoon. Verse 40. Now, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two disciples who heard Uh, from John and followed after him. Uh, He first went and found his very brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ or anointed one. And he led him to Jesus. Now, Jesus looking upon him said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Kephas or Kephas or Cephas or however you say that which is translated Peter or rock. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So, uh, so what, what, what do you notice here in this first conversation with Jesus? What do we, what do we learn about him? What do we learn about his disciples? What's happening here that interests you? So they're already disciples, like in a very literal sense. We, we often think of, you know, like leaving the nets being like the first moment where they became disciples, but it's like, well, they were, they were John's disciples, or at least a, a, a portionment of the disciples were the core ones. And so like, there's a lot of preparation there. I, I'm sure there's an, and common experience and friendship. And of course they work together too as fishermen. But uh, I just find it think that interesting that they were already John the Baptist disciples and he had prepared them already. There were sort of, and this is true, you know, almost in, in real life, you know, we always have multiple different kinds of influences and mentors and or bosses in our lives. Or, I mean, even in our own marriage, Kathy and I have talked about how sometimes our kids need one of us more than the other in certain seasons, and they sort of swap off. So, like, right now, two of our kids seem to listen to me more, and the other one listens to her more. And so, we just kind of know. But then sometimes that shifts in a year, and it's like, oh, guess what? It's your turn now, and we sort of tag team. Behold the Lamb of God. <laughs> Go. There it is. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not, I mean, obviously not so, but <laughs> totally. because you can't really – control it you can't force it you know and it is kind of strange you almost get the sense that john had you know did john have an eye on these two to go follow jesus or is it just they're the ones that happen to be there when jesus goes by and it'd be interesting to know what peter because peter we don't know whether peter was also john the baptist's disciple and and he's like hey i know we've been into this john the baptist guy but john told us about this other guy or or whether maybe Peter was uh, uh, not not on board with the John the Baptist train. <laughs> yeah, although you wonder how to get him down to Judea if he's not, right? I mean, that's one of yeah. the oddities of this story is that our first encounter between Andrew and Peter right. down at is – This is why, I mean, you mentioned earlier, I don't want to harp on this stuff, but it is fascinating. You know, the book of John only works if he knows everything about the other gospels or nothing about them. It works either way, actually. It works if John's just totally independent, not necessarily older, but just just a different tradition Separate that's from, not cognizant yeah. of those. And so he's just unconcerned with these sort of glaring, almost jarring differences. Contradiction's too strong. There are passages where it seems like a straight-up contradiction. We can deal with those some other time. But here it's just – it's a glaring tension because the way that it's told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is you've got these fishermen – and Jesus right. calls them and they leave their nets and they come follow him. And we have no backstory. You can try to fill it in with your mind. The the backstory you would never think of, though, just reading yeah. those is, oh, well, they were followers of John the Baptist down in Judea before. Like that, there's nothing in the text that would make you think that's the background. You might think of some other connection, but so John is supplying really crucial background information. But he doesn't present it again as background information. Again, either he just assumes you know that and he's telling you a different part of the story or is sort of unconnected to the fact that that's the way everyone thinks of the story. And he's telling it the way right. that he's always known the story. Right. And we make some assumptions there that because preachers are the ones full-time ministry, like their only job as a pastor, preachers are the ones that have talked to us about this for years. And so sometimes ah. we make this presumption that it's like, oh, their call to the ministry was either this way or the other way. 
And it's like, well, both could coexist. One could be a follower of John the Baptist and Jesus and still be a fisherman. But Bingo. there was that yes. moment where, so just on a pastoral level, when I've had people reading through scripture and say, what, well, wait a second, I thought they were at the beach up in Capernaum. And when they started to follow Jesus and it's like, well, that could have happened after this easily and been sort of a moment of doubling down to say, Hey, now I really want you to, you know, you have some servants to run the, you know, the sons of thunder fishing company. Uh, it mentions it right in that passage. Come, you know, follow me. We're going to actually road trip this thing. Yeah. And so this, this makes the most sense then as, as a kind of deeper background to the story, which is often what you get in, John's gospel is right. sort of other layers. The director's cut. Right, exactly. Right, where it's like, okay, yeah, there because it is one of the questions when you read, especially in Mark, Luke moves the healing of the mother-in-law before the calling story as somewhat of a way to kind of say like that Peter was already had a moment to be impressed by Jesus. But if all you had was Mark, you would be like, wait, why did they – leave everything and follow this guy. And it doesn't need to be explained, but this is a very plausible. I mean, again, I don't think that's John's primary motive to explain the other gospels. No, right. Right. And like you say, it works either way. Like if there's nothing and he's either without any consciousness of it or, you know, or or complete consciousness of of it means you don't need me to tell you that then. Right. So I can just leave it out. You already know what it's like for him, them to drop their nets and follow. But did you know, in fact, there was this sort of earlier discipleship, this longer story where they were first sitting at the feet of John the Baptist. Right. And which seems very, I mean, it's realistic to how people totally. work. Like, I mean, like a lot of people will ask people to say, well, what's the story of how you met? And I know I have a story I tell about playing a volleyball game with my wife. And it's yeah, kind I've of heard it's, it. It's, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you might have heard it several times, but I tell that story. And but if you ask Kathy, her story of how we met is completely different. And of course, she gets the detail right that we had actually met before that and hung out several times. And we had met maybe a month before that. And so she's sort of like the Luke of our good news of our. She gets the details and everything like that. But I, I kind of tell it more in a. Uh, uh, more like, what would be a good story to tell? Well, the first good story we have is a month in, right? That's perfect. It's perfect. And so neither of us is wrong in that regard. My story is not false. It happened exactly the way I tell it. And uh, But in fact, one of the guys that was in this story, he loves for me to tell it. I've told it uh, at his church one time. Uh, so he, they, they love, but it, but it is a little bit more of, uh, you know, for sure. Of course, I'm, I'm, she doesn't get the chance often to get on a stage and tell the story, so different demands of storytelling. And I wonder if there's some of that here, like what's the point we're getting across. And I think that's overall there is what did John the Baptist think of Jesus was at the forefront of this writer's mind. Like we've got to figure out what did John the Baptist think of Jesus? What's his take on this? And then there is this key emphasis, which of course John does several times about Peter emphasizing Peter's specific calling. He gets his renaming here right at the start. And then the the cool bringer, Andrew, a lot of people pointed this out that Andrew, the first thing he does, right? Is that the way it says it? Yeah. The yes. first thing Andrew did was to find his brother. And I just love that kind of first thing instinct of like, okay, I, I need to, I need to bring, you know, 
my brother who I love along with me for this ride. And all three times that Andrew shows up in John's gospel, he's bringing somebody else to Jesus. So this time he brings the boy with his lunch in chapter six, also during Passover. And then at the, at the the third and final Passover, Andrew and Philip are bringing some Greeks who want to come meet Jesus. Mm. And he's sort of brokering it. Exactly. So he's that bringer. Every time we see him, he's bringing somebody else into, which of course then adds to the mystery of who this other unnamed disciple is. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's goods hints throughout the rest of the gospel that this is the beloved disciple who isn't necessarily John son of Zebedee, which would add up to what we were just talking about, which would be, why does this writer want to make so sure that the John the Baptist testimony is featured? triple times, right? That would yeah, fit that. Because he heard that it. That maybe it was Andrew and John. He heard all this. He was witness to these specific events, and they weren't emphasized in the other Gospels. Yeah, because the very end of the book, right, which has all these same characters assembled again. Exactly. Up in Galilee, in a kind of follow me kind of sequence. Right. Uh, the, the miraculous catch all then ends with his testimony is true. His testimony is. So the idea that he's this eyewitness and ear witness back from verse 14, we beheld his glory. He tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. So this is him. So I, I completely agree with you. And I hadn't made the connection because I hadn't always put these two passages next to each other, the way the lectionary does here to kind of say at the end of the day, this isn't actually about John the Baptist's testimony, yeah. about the testimony yeah. of the beloved disciple, whoever he is. Yeah, for sure. Maybe and it, that mystery I mean, for later, but and he's and and also his primacy over Peter, like subtly. Yes. While also Peter's still the guy. He's the one getting the name. He's the leader. He never he's never primacy over Peter in terms of authority. Peter's the guy, and yet, and probably the authority behind Mark's gospel, historically, that's been the He's he's the hipster primacy. I was into Jesus before he was cool. Yeah. <laughs> we were there just, you know, a couple hours ahead. Just, you know. <laughs> I love that. Another thing, it reminds me of a great experience one of my close friends had. Back to the context of this and the Lamb of God, which I think you know, you definitely, that's a theme here of the Lamb of God, the Passover and all that. I have some friends that served in a Muslim context for almost two decades, and they talked about how there was a specific sacrifice that they had in their culture, and that in that season, they would have tons of sheep and goats led through this major city. And they literally, the subway tunnels, they... They, you know, the sheep wouldn't ride the subway, but in order to cross a major street, they would lead them like all subways have like down one side and through the subway area and then up the other side. So they didn't have to cross the street with a bunch of sheep. The shepherds would do this. And I just thought like, okay, they talked about how in that culture, it was just like, you just knew during the sacrifice feast, there's going to be all these sheep around. And so I just think there is a sense in which that's probably how it felt here. Like it's impossible for him to make this lamb of God reference without it being like, okay, they all know even little kids, you know, that are going to go down to, you know, to the Passover, you know, they would have never seen so many sheep in their life, even if they were shepherds back home. And then of course, so many slaughtered too. And so it's a a thought of uh, lambs and thought of blood immediately. That's the context. Yeah. So anyone listening in would know exactly what he's, saying and you're right this language of because you get actually a lot of sort of titles thrown around right they call him teacher yeah 
but ending up saying he is the Messiah. Messiah. And good almost, point. He's going out of his way to do a lot of translating as if he's kind of like, well, it'd be interesting to take just a whole chapter one of John and say, what are the titles used for Jesus? Cause yeah. we do that through scripture. The whole of chapter one is oh, just Oh, cause if over you keep going, again. Philip will refer to him as the one about whom Moses and the prophets spoke. And he calls him King of Israel too. Right. And then he's he calls king him of King Israel. of Israel. Exactly. But then the Jesus ends, Jesus refers son to himself yeah, yeah, as yeah, son himself. of man. Yeah, so he right. gets his favorite title in. Is that the, the first time he refers to himself? Yes. Yes. Nice. So what a great thing, man. John is just a maestro. Yeah, I mean, man. it's just a literary master, you know, just kind of unfolding it before our eyes. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's so good. Well, let's take a quick break and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Dave Drury, and we are looking at John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. John's declaration of Jesus as the Lamb of God, his testimony regarding the baptism and the word that God gave to him. And then these first followers of Jesus, they're disciples of John. And then it says, goes out of their way to use that verb follow. They start to follow him. So we get these, these first moments here. And then the very first words of Jesus with all, I mean, there's so much going on here. So where would you kind of focus your energies if you were developing a sermon or a teaching on this text? Where, where would kind of your, uh, your focus be and how would you run with it from there? So if it was self-contained and it was, you know, sometimes the the difference between a one-off sermon on just this passage, you know, by the lectionary, or in some cases, if you're just like a visiting speaker and they give you a text or you're, you know, a staff member at a church and you're just having to preach just this one. I mean, definitely the Lamb of God part would be great theme that ties the two passages together most tightly. The idea of testimony would tie it together tightly. The identity of Christ, you know, because there are enough titles, even in just this section, the idea of all the different, you know, the, which we, you just referenced, even just in this section, not all of chapter one, but you could do the, you know, who is Jesus? Uh, this, this idea, you know, you could start with the Lamb of God, you know, he surpasses John the Baptist, you know, there's the presence Son of, of God the, in 34. The, yep. The Son mm-hmm. of God, the spirit role with this. The one, I mean, there's the implied father, the one who said to me this. And so you've got some Trinitarian focus to this, the idea of the rabbi in verse 38, you know, and then finishing up with the Messiah. And so in the very last part of it in verse like 41. So I think that you could talk about that, um, would be a fun way to dabble with it. I think you, you know, you definitely could use this as a, a baptism message. That'd be kind of fun. Because you, most of the people like to have people tell their story at a baptism. And so this is an example of somebody telling a story about a baptism. And so, especially if you could really focus a message about telling people about a baptism, right? Like, can you share about what you hear and what happens here? That'd be fun. I mean, if you explode it out, John as a series, though, is one of the Great books. I mean, I think the conversations with Jesus one would be interesting and you could really focus on that first conversation of the disciples 
you'd probably want to include the Philip and Nathaniel ones if you were going to do that. But all the conversations you can hit in the first half of the book of John are just phenomenal. I love that myself. Wrote a whole book on that on that sort of theme. The water thing, like there's water metaphors through John and light metaphors. Light and darkness are not as focused here, but water is. And so like water, you could hit the baptism here. You could kick it off with this and then go into the water to wine, right? The Nicodemus, he talks, you know, you need to be born of water or the spirit, the Spiritan woman, right? Living water, two healings, right? The pool of Bethesda, pool of Siloam or water. So that's like the first half. Then like, I mean, foot washing and is water. Water I mean, it's just a great side. water. F- yeah. Water on the side is it? Yeah, right. All the way at the end. That takes you all the way to the end of the book. So that you could do a cool way of, hey, I just watched that Avatar movie, The Way of Water. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, and he says explicitly, the narrator in chapter seven, that the, this water that's going to gush up from within, that that's the Holy Spirit who mm. had not yet come. Where's that? It's in chapter seven. Chapter 7, verse 38, 37, 38, after he says, all those who come to me, believe in mm. me and come to me, I will give them you know, living water. And then the narrator just interjects that this is the- By this, um, he meant the spirit. Who the believe, yep, yep. Who had not yet come though, right? So it's like saying- Yeah, that's why the they labor to Right. Up to that time, spirit had not been given. Ah, oh, this is perfect. Because the water imagery is almost completely absent in the, the second half of John in his speeches, right? Because he's speaking mm-hmm. explicitly about the spirit there, whereas he's yeah. very coy about the spirit. I think in the first half, he's speaking That's in metaphors and riddles and parables. Love that. Love that. Which is all, it's all laid out though, in, right here in this passage. I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Because he himself is, in a certain sense, baptized in the Holy Spirit. So he gets baptized with water by John, but the Father from heaven sends the Spirit on him, right? So Spirit and water go together. They're not opposed to each other. That's great. But the Spirit's the one doing the deeper work. And it's sort of, in some ways, implied that it's not said explicitly, but it's the same verb when he keeps talking about where are you remaining, where are you abiding, they came and abide with him there. This is their moment of being baptized with the Spirit, right? Not fully, not in the way they will at the end when he blows his Holy Spirit on them. But this is the beginnings of the Spirit's movement in the life of his first followers, you know, the Spirit mm. subtly drawing them to him. You know, what is it that got them to follow him, right? I think yeah. there are passages in the book of John that imply that, well, this would be the the Father nudging them, the Spirit moving them, right? The Spirit blows where He wills, so it is with all those born of the Spirit, right? Or born from above. So they're kind of being drawn to Him. We couldn't explain why exactly. They have a witness as to why, but a lot of people heard Him say, this is the Lamb of God. They didn't go after Him. There's something there to play with, I think. But Yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. I mean, in some sense, John is a easy book to preach through. Yeah, as long as you don't bite off too much. You have to focus. Yeah. <laughs> That'd yeah. be the only thing. But I agree with you. He is, it's very, very easy to preach on as long as you don't try to like preach seven. Because the, the only trouble is there's seven sermons in this passage. There you is. You probably shouldn't preach all of them in one sermon. <laughs> right, right. And so like, for instance, if you're trying to do all of, you know, one through 18 in one sermon, good luck, you know, the whole prologue. And then if you try to do all three of these sections that featured John the Baptist, that's quite a bit going on. So you would, it would be kind of 
more fun to to focus in a little bit more. Although if you are ex- exploding out, I think you do some of the things we just talked about, which sort of tie it together and you hit more thematically, a little harder to go into every single nuance you might find there. But the whole, I do think people are, if you're, you're wanting to preach a sermon that's focused on baptism, which is a problem. Preachers always have this sort of like, how do I preach about baptism in a way that's not going to be the same sermon I've preached 40 other times? Ah, this would be a great way to do that. And this is a good way because it's, because it's not narrating it. It's telling what happened at it. So that'd be good. I, I think obviously, I think the baptism of Jesus is a good one because it's a great example of like, well, Jesus did this. Why would you not? You know, it's like even Jesus, you're like people that think it's optional. It's like, well, if anybody could have said it was optional, it's Jesus. For goodness sakes, it literally just says he comes to baptize with the spirit, not with water. It almost seems like it's optional in his (laughs) modus operandi. So if that's the case, why did he do it? And so there's that obedience I think is helpful. And then I think that this is also an interesting passage to choose if you wanted to, like Advent's another one, a lot of preachers struggle with what do I do for Advent? What do I do for Lent? And these are both, these would work for either of those kind of like, how do I infuse Advent? It's sometimes, how do you feel like you're not Linus in Charlie Brown show, just telling Luke to yet again. And this helps like, say like, okay, where does John start with the story? Well, he doesn't. He doesn't even tell you about a manger. He starts with Jesus. This is how Jesus is introduced on the scene. Here is how the incarnation starts for John. And you could almost do a, you know, a chapter one, the first half of chapter one, and then, you know, focus on the testimony of John the Baptist and then the followers as kind of like a new way to think about Advent. The coming of Christ is not just a a nativity scene. It's how it changes everything in this broad sweeping ways. That would be a fun way to do an Advent uh, series to sort of wake yourself up as a preacher. I actually know several preachers who privately say they hate preaching at Christmas. Yeah, which no, sounds I know a horrible. Lot of them. Yeah, it sounds horrible to say, but it's sort of insider baseball stuff to anybody that's on here that's not a preacher. But it happens, and some of it's just it feels hazard, like yeah. repeat. Yeah, it feels yeah. like oh, I'm, I'm the same thing every year. The other one is Passover and Lent that I just mentioned because of the Lamb of God, because of the Passover connection, you could hit this. The other passage you mentioned in the middle in John 6 and then pop down to the end, like the, the Passovers of John would be a fun one. And this this will this episode will drop in January during a, a not as widely known holiday uh, amongst the evangelicals, the season of Epiphany and the idea of the the appearing of Jesus, the coming forward of Jesus. And so this is a really good Christmas follow-up too. It's like, okay, right. so if he is the so Lamb of what? God, the Son of God, now what? Well, follow him. And or even better, you could ask his question, because we haven't we haven't zoomed in on this, but this is part of why this is one of my favorite moments, favorite stories, just a personal, I have a personal attachment to this story because of some experiences praying with these very words of Jesus. Mm first words, again, it's hard to not think of the other gospels, but in the way that John tells it, the first time John speaks, yeah. What are you looking for? What do you want? What are you seeking? Interesting enough, he asks the same question of Mary when he appears after his resurrection, right? Although there it's a who, who are you looking for? Mm. But what are you looking for? What, What are you seeking after? And it's very vague. And it's sort of like, what is your answer to this question when Jesus asks you this question? 
I feel like I could build a whole sermon around this. Just does he notion. say that about the invalid too? The pool of Bethesda guy. What do you there want? He says, "Do you want? Do you want to get well?" But then it's related because it's about what is it that you're seeking? What do you want? Oh, that'd be great right. to line up those questions that he asks. Yeah, what Very are you seeking? The first thing Jesus said, you know, of course, in the other gospels, right? The first words that Jesus speaks as an adult are his preaching, a summary of his preaching, the kingdom of heaven is yeah, near. Right. Repent. And that's crucial. But like you said, with in the gospel of John, there's focus less on him as a public preacher and more as a conversationalist. Now, sometimes in public, in debate, sometimes more intimately in more relaxed, gentle conversation, but it's it's definitely all about dialogue. It's all conversation. And here he is asking them, what are you looking for? Yeah. And the funny thing is, is we don't have the tone and the tone could have been a little neutral or even gruff. Like, what are you looking at? What are you doing? You talking right? to me? Cause he says he looks back and they're like following him. It's kind of creepy, right? What do you, what are you doing? Well, and then they go like, where are you staying? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's important that they didn't get spooked off though. They gave an answer and they ask where are you yes. staying? Right. As if to imply, we want to be with you now, you know? Yeah. But discipleship starts here, which is with questions, starts in a dialogue. But then he turns to invitation, come and you will see. Doesn't wow, tell him. Isn't that loaded? Isn't Doesn't that tell loaded? Him, right? you'll guess what you're going to see. Exactly. Right. Oh, you're right. Because then at the end of the chapter, he says, you know, greater things than these you will see. Right. So he's already Ooh. planting the seeds of. That's right. You shall see heaven open and the angels. Yep. Yeah, come and you will descending. see. Right. So they start to follow. Oh, that's, and oh, that's all so the dynamics right of discipleship are there. Right. You hear the witness of someone else. You don't have the experience yourself. The first, first words of Jesus. That's how I title there that you go. sermon. Because yes. that, that piques my curiosity. What are the first words of Jesus? And it's at least the first words that. In John's rendering. Andrew, and he's an artist. John it's an artist. Said. Very intentional. These are his first words as he is told in this gospel. And it's a question. So then it's a question you can address to every single person. Mm, Here's your sermon. Wow. What are you That's seeking? That's good. That's good. What are you chasing? Right? Yeah, that's powerful, John. And that's so hard. I think it's hard for us to answer that question as humans too. It's hard yeah. for us to, like, I feel like we do a lot of striving and I do too for things that we're not entirely able to articulate why. And clearly they're striving and seeking. They're already disciples of John. Not a very easy dude to follow, by the way. So they do some pretty intense stuff with Jesus. But in some ways, you know, it's like when you find somebody that's into like more obscure musical tastes and they're already into a pretty hardcore example. <laughs> and that's who these guys are. They're, they're already following the most hardcore band around in John the Baptist. And just two days ago, he said he's not the Messiah. So they're like, he's got a high bar and he's not even the one. He's saying, I'm just getting you guys ready. Which also makes you wonder if he specifically at, they asked him. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? You know, they're already questioning him on his identity. It's, it, there's, there's this sort of expectancy towards the Messiah already. Right. So then, like, even that adds weight In the to, passage before I just, exactly. just read. But that adds weight to Andrew's line in verse 41 when he says to Peter, we have found the Messiah. That implies they've been looking for him. Good point. That's what Good they've point. been seeking. In some ways, yes. that is the answer to the question, what are you seeking? Mm. We're looking for the Messiah, Right. Of course, that's not what they say. They don't say that. They say that to Andrew or to Peter. Yep. They just say where he's staying. 
Because <laughs> uh, they've already so found great. it. Maybe. Maybe it's implied, well, we're not seeking anything. It's you. Yeah. <laughs> so we just want to hang out with you and see where it goes. And he's like, all right, come and, come and find out. And you could tease that out. I mean, I have heard somebody make reference to the fact that we're all disciples of something or someone already. Yes, good. So that would be something to start with. And then that you can emphasize with these disciples. The other thing you can emphasize, though, is it's different to be seeking the Messiah than actually following the Son of God. Yes, yes, yes. So, like, you could literally believe there's a Messiah coming, believe it's the most important thing, commit your life to it, and think how much the disciples still have to learn from this moment. Even though they found the Messiah, it's the beginning of the story, not the end. And we so often make discipleship about a decision to follow the Messiah. And it's like, well, it's more than that. It's this whole journey of your life of discipleship to follow the the Son of God. Yeah. Well, once you've found the Messiah now, what's at stake is to follow him and to abide with him, be in fellowship yeah. with him. It's not just to find and have faith, but to follow and to be with and see mm-hmm. where it takes you. Hey, this is fun. I think we gave a lot of, a lot of fodder for different sermon possibilities for our listeners. Uh, thanks so much, David. I love interpreting scripture with you. I've been exegeting scripture with you longer than almost anybody, and it's always a blast. So, for sure. Same yeah. here. Love it. Love your perspectives and your take and your insights and knowledge. It's so instructive to me. You've discipled me through the years so much. Oh, well, thanks. That's nice of you to say. Thanks to uh, Todd and Eric for the production work. Can't imagine doing the show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Uh, thanks to all our supporters of the show. If you'd like to become a patron saint of the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh and find ways to support the show. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>